All right, well, good morning. Um, welcome to uh, Tri-Village Church. Uh, my name is Will Franco, and uh, I got emotional there during that last song, so my contacts are a little bit off, so I, I'm seeing like, it's really like my eyes are drying up, so if I'm, if I'm looking at you weird, I'm not cross-eyed, I promise, I just, my eyes uh, are adjusting. Um, listen, this morning, we are uh, continuing and concluding our series in First Peter entitled Living Hope, Living Hope. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's no worries. It's going to be on the screen here uh, behind me, but it's going to be 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. If you are with me, say Amen. Here's what it says in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5. It says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. It's the word of the Lord. Now this morning, uh, we are going to be addressing and unpacking the subject of spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. And uh, that's part of the reason why this week has been so difficult. Last week, for those of you who are here, I said, hey, be sure to be praying. And this week, I know we're not supposed to say sucked in church, this week sucked, okay? And so my, my idea, my thing is this, if this week it was horrible, and that's what with you guys praying, what would it have been like if you guys hadn't been praying, right? So the enemy's real, and we are about to expose him, okay? So that's what we're going to be talking about. We're going to be discussing the subject of spiritual warfare, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at this subject of spiritual warfare under three headings. We're going to look at our enemy, then we are going to look at our weapons, and then we're going to conclude by looking at our champion, all right? Our enemy, our weapons, and our champion. So let's begin by looking at our enemy. Look what it says in verse 8, in the second half of verse 8. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So he's looking for someone, he's a lion who is looking for someone to devour. So the first thing I want to look at this morning is I want to look at our enemy. Because if we are going to be successful in this war that we are in, we have to be aware of who we are fighting. You know, uh, uh, a few weeks ago, before the Super Bowl happened, I was watching this thing on SportsCenter, and it was this thing on Tom Brady and how he prepares for the Super Bowl. And this guy just watched hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of, of footage for one game of football, for two hours of his life. And you know the thing that most convicted me? That he was more prepared for the team he was going to play than I am for the enemy that I fight every day. Okay? Okay? So we need to be aware of who our enemy is. And that's why the first truth we're looking at is who is our enemy. And in order to figure out who our enemy is, what I want to do is I want to ask and answer two questions concerning our enemy. Okay, the first question is who is he? And the second question is what does he do? So who is he and what does he do? Okay, so let's answer the first question. Who is he? Now the first thing I want you to know about this enemy is that this enemy is a real, actual, personal being. Okay? 
He's a real, this, that's something we have to establish right at the beginning. He is a real, actual, personal being. He is real, okay? And part of the reason why we know he's real is because Jesus mentions him personally 27 times in the gospel. 27 times in the gospel, Jesus brings up Satan, okay? So we know he's real because Jesus says he is. Now, even though that sounds really dumb to start a message on Satan by stating that he's real, the reason why that's important for us to do is because a lot of people don't, just don't believe he is. We live in a world that tells you there's no such thing as an enemy. And if there is, he's this ridiculous red-looking thing with horns, right? And so we have to establish at the front end that he is a real person. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, he, he begins the, in the first chapter, and he talks about the two extremes that people have when it comes to Satan and demons. And look, look how Lewis puts it. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall into about the devils, can fall about the devils. He says, one, listen to this, is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, the demons and Satan, they themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So those are the two extremes. When it comes to Satan and demons, there's the people who don't, on the one hand, who, on one hand, who don't, who don't believe he exists, right? And then on the, other, on the other extreme are the people who only ever think about him. He's so, he's so real to them that they're always thinking about him and he's behind every bush and around every corner, right? And what, what, what Lewis says is that Satan and the demons don't care which extreme you have. They don't care if you're a materialist who, doesn't, who don't believe he exists or a magician who believes he's everywhere. They don't care. As long as your view of him is skewed, that's all he cares about. As long as your view is skewed, he is one, okay? Now, as we look at who he is, I also want you to look at the, the if you go back to the passage, look, look how he's described. So he's described as our enemy, the devil. The word enemy there, it means adversary. It means someone who stands against you. And, and the word picture that you have in Greek when you see the word enemy is someone who stands as an opponent in, in, in the court. So it's someone who has filed a lawsuit against you. That's what the word enemy there means. Okay, that's the word picture that, that Peter wants us to have. And then the word devil, this is interesting, the word devil actually means slanderer. It means someone who falsely accuses. That's what the word devil there means. Someone who brings false accusations against you. Okay? So that's, that's who we are battling. We are battling an opponent, a legal opponent, because opponent, he, he has the law against us, right? That's how he holds us under his power. And he is a slanderer and a false, an accus he's an accuser of false things. That's what he does. That's how he attacks us, okay? Now, before I jump into, so, so, that's, so that's how he, he comes at us. That's how he, no, I can't, I, I'm, I'm stuck. I'm, I, you know the enemy's real, I'm trying to figure out what, what my next point was. Um, so so, so he, he's a personal, okay, here it is what it is. He's not only is he, is he personal, but he's also very powerful, hence me forgetting what I have to say. Okay, here's why he's powerful, because according to scripture, if you look at Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, in scripture, what you have is you have a description. If you go to those two chapters in the Old Testament, if you want to read them, you could read them later. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, you get a description of who Satan was before he fell. And what we find out about Satan is that he was a very, very powerful, powerful being. Actually, what we find out in the Old Testament, he was the guardian cherub. He was the, the head of the angels. He was the head of the cherub. So the cherub are the highest rank of angels, and Satan, who his name was Lucifer, was the highest of that rank. He was the highest angel in the highest rank, 
okay? And what we're told in the Old Testament is that he was the guardian sheriff. He was the guardian sheriff. So here's what it means. He was the one that led all the other, all the other angels in worship of God, okay? So when, when it comes to what the things that God has created, there's nothing more powerful or more beautiful than God has created than Lucifer. And his job was to lead the other angels in the worship of God. Now, the reason why we know he's so powerful is not just because of the way God created him, but he was so powerful that it says that, it, it tells us in, in both chapters in the Old Testament, that at one point he decides to rebel, and he is so uh, uh, powerful that he's able to take one-third of the angels with him, okay? Now, now I know you guys, when we think of, you, we think of angels, like we think of chubby baby with wings, right? Chubby babies with wings, but angels are extremely powerful, extremely glorious beings. So much so that if the Lord ever allowed us to open our eyes to see what's even going on in this room right now, and we were able to see the angels and demons that are in this room right now, we would, we would fall at their feet because they're so glorious and they're so powerful. So Satan, Lucifer, was so powerful that he was able to take one-third of the angels, one-third, who were in the presence of God. God was right there. And he was able to take one-third of them with him. See, part of this thing is that we have to respect. Not only do we have to be aware, but we have to respect the enemy that we're fighting. He's a very powerful being. He's a very powerful being. Not only do we know that because of who he takes with him, but then in the, in the letter to Jude, there's this really interesting story that Jude tells that was revealed to him by God. And there's a battle going on between Michael the archangel and Satan. Satan is so powerful that Michael the archangel doesn't attack him. He says, the Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel doesn't even go after him because he knows he can't, okay? So he's a very powerful being. And so here's why I need you to know this, because he is so powerful that if you're sitting here today and you, A, don't think he exists, or B, think he exists, but it's not that big of a deal, I need you to hear from me. Satan has taken out people much wiser, much stronger, much godlier than you, okay? So respect our enemy. Don't fear him, but respect him because he can, and if you don't respect him, he will destroy you, okay? So we see that he is a personal being. We see that he is also not just personal, he's powerful. But the other thing that we find out in the Old Testament is that he's prideful, right? Personal, powerful, and he's prideful. And here's why we know he's prideful, because it says, it tells us both in Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28 that he comes to a point where he gets a wind of the fact of just how beautiful and glorious he is. And so he starts saying, wait, 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 why am I helping these guys worship God when they should be worshiping me? And he literally, he's a direct quote from his mouth. He says, I will put my throne above his throne. And so he's extremely prideful. You know how he, we know he's prideful? Because he is the source of pride. You see, at least with Eve, Eve was tempted by somebody. Satan wasn't tempted by anybody. The sin came from within him. He led himself astray. He is extremely, extremely prideful. But here's the one thing I want to say about him. This is really important. Even though I just told, him that I'm the, I just told you that he's powerful and that he's, you know, he's, he's the guardian, glorious cherub. Here's the thing. He is not God's equal. He's not even close to being God's equal. And so if you're sitting here today and you think it's God on one side and Satan on the other, that's not how it is. Because God doesn't have an equal. And if we were to find Satan's counterpart, it's more Michael and Gabriel than it is God. 
Because God's the creator and he is the creation, okay? So even though we're, we're about to find out that he is a lion, he is a lion on a leash, okay? So he's very furious, but he's on a leash. And so God lets him go as far as God wants. And when God calls him back, he has to come back and he has to sit. Go back into your cage, Satan. Thanks. So even though he's a lion, he's a lion on the leash. Okay? That's something that, and we know that, we know that because when you look at the book of Job, he was only able to do something to Job after he asked God for permission. So as powerful as he is, he's got to ask God for permission. And then in the New Testament, Jesus tells Peter, hey, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I have allowed him to. Make sure that after you fall, because you're going to fall, Satan, uh, Peter, because you're a fool. He's like, I, I'm gonna, I, he asked to, to sift you like wheat. When you fail, make sure you come back. But he had to ask Jesus too, okay? So he's a lion, but he's on a leash. Look at this quote from uh, John Orberg. He says, there are dozens of references to God in the scriptures for everyone to the figure of Satan. This reflects a sometimes forgotten theological truth that the devil is by no means God's counterpart. He is a creature, not the creator. Okay? So even though he's powerful and even though we have to respect him, he belongs to God. He is under God's power because he is a creature and not the creator. He is a lion, but he's on a leash. Now, now that we've looked at who he is, I want to, as we continue to discuss this concept of our enemy, I want to talk about what does he do? What, what does he do? We know who he is now, but what does he do? If you go back to the passage, look what this passage says. He says he is, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know, it's interesting to me that the image that, that, that Peter thinks of is a lion. You see, because when we think of lions, we think of the Lion King. And when we think of lions, we think of Brookfield Zoo and Lincoln Park Zoo and this, this thing that looks dangerous, but it's behind a glass and it's been tamed and it can't do anything to us. But back then, in, in Peter's day, there was only two contexts in which you saw a lion. In the Colosseum, when he was ripping someone apart, or on a path somewhere when you were heading to another city, Right? So when he brings up a lion, he's not thinking about the cute lion that you see on the Discovery Channel that's raised from when he's born. No, no. He's thinking about a ferocious animal who will destroy you if he has a chance. Okay? The word there, he says, the enemy prowls. The word prowls in Greek is a very interesting word because it literally means to tread in such a way in order to take possession of a territory. So it's, 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 it's walking with a purpose. It's to tread and to do it for the purpose of taking possession of a territory. And it's in the active tense. In other words, he's always doing it. In other words, Satan doesn't sleep. So we sleep, but Satan never stops prowling. He never stops pursuing. He never stops looking for opportunities to attack you, okay? That's how he works. That's how he does it. And then it says, he he's, uh, uh, prowls around like a roaring lion. Here's what's interesting about that, that phrase, roaring. It, it, it means to, to, to uh, it, it could describe a wolf's howl or a lion's roar, but it means to roar with the, the, point, the, the, the desire to eat. So he roars because he's hungry. But what's interesting is I heard this professor brought, bring something up. It's so interesting. And go back to that. It, you don't have to go back to it. But remember the quote I brought up with, with uh, Lewis, that there are people who believe he doesn't exist on the one hand and the people who are absolutely terrified of him on the, uh, terrified of him on the other? 
this professor said that there's this frog called the bull, like horned frog. And what this frog does when he's under pressure, when he's afraid, is he, he blows up really, really big to try to scare you away, right? So he tries fear first. But then if that doesn't work, if you keep getting closer, he'll, he'll get little, he'll get, he'll, he'll get small again, and then he'll turn around and act like he's dead. That's exactly who Satan is. That's exactly what Satan does. So, so he roars to try to freak you out, and if you're not scared, he doesn't do the first extreme, which Lewis talks about, then he'll turn around and act dead. So he doesn't want you to see him for who he is. So he either scares you or he tries to make you think he's gone. That's how he is. Okay? And the word there looking, like a roaring lion looking, the word there looking is not like a casual glance. The word there looking, it means that he's taking aim at you. He, he's looking at you like a, like a guided missile. That's the type of looking we're talking about. It's intense searching is the word looking there. Actually, the word there is so strong, in fact, that it's the same word used to describe Jesus where he says, I came to seek and save the lost. The word there, seek, is the same word that's used there. So, so Satan seeks you with the same fervor Jesus seeks you. Jesus seeks you in order to save you. He, say, he seeks you in order to destroy you. But it's the same Greek word there where it says that he is looking for someone. And in the word devour, it literally means to swallow something whole, to gulp you up. It means to utterly destroy you and ruin you. In other words, Satan is not trying to just take your legs out. Satan is trying to kill you. My wife and I were watching this week as we were talking about this whole concept of a lion. We were watching this video of a lion actually attacking an animal. And like the, the lion, it, it, we'll talk about this a little more in a little bit, but the lion literally avoid where the animal's looking this way, so the lion goes this way. And the animal's looking that way, and he's always behind him, so he can't be seen. When he finally attacks him, he doesn't go after his feet. He doesn't go after his back. He goes after his neck. Because Satan will always attack the area where you are most exposed. And he will always attack the area that's going to cause the most damage. That's how he does it. That's who he is. Okay? So as we talk about who he is we, and what he does, we need to understand. I, I came across this really helpful article, and they said that there, there's a, he, she gave four Ds, four ways in which Satan attacks us. And I actually have thought of a few more, but here's a few of them. One of the ways that Satan attacks us is he comes after our doctrine, our doctrine, what we believe about God. That's actually the primary way he attacks us. Because if he can change your view about God, then he has you defeated. If he can change how you view God, if he goes after your doctrine, if he can make you disregard the gospel... That's why the book of Galatians, Paul talks about Satan being the one that's ultimately promoting the, the false gospel. He says, you be accursed. If anyone adds anything or takes away anything from the gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be sent to hell because that's where it comes from. So that's one of the ways. He goes after your doctrine. Another thing that Satan does is he discourages you. Because discouragement is really interesting. And you guys have known from my own story, that's something I struggle with a lot. But discouragement, here's what's interesting about discouragement. The reason why discouragement is so effective and the reason why Satan uses it so often is because if Satan can discourage you, then he doesn't have to even tell you, not, you don't even have to worry about the privileges and the weapons you have in the gospel because if you're discouraged, you're not even going to reach for the weapons. That's, his, his job is done if you're discouraged. Okay? Another thing he uses is he uses discontentment. He loves using discontentment. 
And he, what he does is he just makes you feel like your spouse is not enough, your job is not enough, your, your, your season of life is not enough, and he just keeps you where you are. And you don't end up making any progress because you're either bitter about losing something in the past or you're focused about gaining something in your future, and then you don't do nothing about what's in front of you. So discontentment is a major one, is a major one. Another thing that Satan does is he's, he divides. So there, there's never been a church that has split that Satan hasn't been in the middle of, Okay. Division is always where the enemy reigns. He loves division. He causes division everywhere he goes, okay? Another thing that he does is he goes after your desires. Here's what I mean by your desires. Every single one of us is created in a certain way, and there are certain things that we are more prone to than others, okay? Satan doesn't have a one-size-fit-all approach. He changes his approach based on who he is going after, Look at this quote from, I think his name is uh, Thomas Adams. There you go. He's a Puritan. And look how he said. He said, Satan, listen to this, like a fisher, baits his hook according to the appetite of the fish. He doesn't do a one-size-fit-all temptation. So if he knows you struggle with ambition, he's going to tempt you with a promotion. If he knows you struggle with security, he's going to tempt you with the economy failing. If he knows you struggle with, with fear, he's going to tempt you by attacking your family. See, whatever your thing is, that's what he's going to do. Just like a lion only uh, uh, attacks an animal in the most vulnerable spot, Satan will only attack you in the most vulnerable spot. Because he's trying to devour you. He's trying to destroy you. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, I've never had anyone hate me before. No, you have someone who absolutely despises you. You know how I know Satan despises you? Imagine if someone went through the Holocaust and then one day hated you so much that they told you, I wish you were through the Holocaust and experience what I experienced. That's a lot of hate someone has to have to wish the Holocaust on you. Satan knows exactly what hell is, and he wants that for you. And hell is infinitely worse than any Holocaust. That's how much he hates you and despises you, okay? This is really important, guys. And the last way he he comes after us is he deceives us. He's very deceiving. He wants you to believe lies about God. He wants you to believe lies about your identity. He wants you to believe lies about anything as long as you're not believing the truth. He is a deceiver, and that's what he does, okay? Look at this quote from Pastor Tim Keller. Look how he puts this concept of of, of being uh, uh, dishonest or lying. He says, Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on the flesh, but with lies in the heart. So if you're worried for this creature to come out at night and attack you, yeah, that might happen, but I I doubt it. But what's always going to happen? See, the devil's in the details. He's always in the details. And he's much more likely to put a lie in your heart than he is to put a fang in your flesh. That's how he rolls. And that's why we have to be careful. Okay? So we've looked at our enemy. You can put the three points back up. We've looked at our enemy. Now what I want to do is I want to look at our weapons. I want to look at our weapons. And what I've done proportionately is I've given one point to Satan and the other two to the answer because I want God to be glorified in this and not Satan, okay? So let's look at our weapons. Now that we know who our enemy is, let's look at what weapons we've been given. If you look at me with with me again um, in verse 8, here's what it says. I'm going to just read through again because the weapons are all in verse 8 and 9. It says, be alert and of sober mind. It says, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Okay? So, 
In verses 8 and 9, we are given three tools, three weapons, if you will, that we have to be aware of if we are going to fight this enemy, all right? The first one is emotional. There's an emotional weapon. The second weapon is a mental weapon. And then the third weapon is a relational, okay? So we are going to fight Satan emotionally, relationally, and, oh, I'm sorry, emotionally, uh, mentally, and relationally, okay? So the first way that we fight Satan actually doesn't actually come from this particular verse. It comes from the one right before it. I didn't put it up there because I want you to listen, but if you were here last week, you would have heard this, okay? Here's what it says. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, verse 6, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. For those of you who were here last week, we were talking about humility. And you're like, wait, wait, why are you going back to last week? That was last week's message. Well, here's why I'm bringing it up. Because one of the things that you might assume as you go through this passage is that Peter is changing the subject from verse to verse to verse to verse. But he's not changing the subject. It all is meant to be seen together. And so the first way that you and I must be fighting Satan is we have to fight him emotionally. So, so look at it this way. In World War I and World War II, there was a major war going on, but there was multiple fronts that the war was going on at. Like there was multiple battlefronts. The first battlefront, if we are going to fight Satan correctly, is we have to fight him on the battlefront of our emotions. Okay? And the reason why Peter goes from pride and anxiety into Satan is because that's the place where Satan attacks you. That's the place where Satan comes after you. This is how he is. And so, so here's, let me put it to you like this. The reason why pride is the emotion that Satan most uses is because it's the same emotion that got him kicked out of heaven. So when you are prideful is when you are most like Satan. Okay? That's why pride, emotionally, we have to be willing to fight the battle on the emotional front. Because the way you keep yourself out of Satan's reach is through humility. And I have the quote here from Jonathan Edwards that we looked at last week. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. But then that means the opposite is also true. Nothing sets a person so much in the devil's reach than pride. Satan loves pride. See, nothing blocks God's grace more than pride. Pride is anti-grace. You know, Lewis, I forgot what book it is, but he has this, he, he gives this picture of what would happen to the world. I think it might be mere Christianity, of what would happen to the world if Satan took over. And when we think of Satan taking over the world, we would think there would be chaos and there would be crazy and there'd be debauchery and sin all over the place. He says that if Satan ever took over the world, everyone would be a church and everyone would be religious and no one would be breaking laws. You know why he says that? Because that would be religion, and there's nothing more prideful than a religious person. So everyone thinks that if Satan took over, it'd be chaos and sin. And No, no, no. It would be very calm, very religious. Everyone would be at church. Everyone would have their notebooks out, and everyone would think they can save themselves. That's when Satan's really there. Okay? That's what Satan does. He uses prideful people. Okay? And then, and then he talks about anxiety. And we, we, last week, if you guys remember, we said that pride is the root, anxiety is the fruit. That someone who's anxious doesn't seem like a prideful person, but someone who's anxious is actually extremely prideful because they're sitting on God's throne and they're wearing God's crown. Right? And so they're worried about things that only the creator should be worrying about, but they're so busy acting like the creator that they're not behaving like the creation. So someone who's anxious is someone who's actually very proud. 
Now, one of the things I heard this week that I found really interesting is that if you look at the word pride and you look at the word anxiety, they all have one letter in the middle. They both have one letter in the middle. You know what letter's in the middle of both? I. When you, when you, when you struggle with pride and when you struggle with anxiety, the reason why is because you are worshiping yourself. It is the, both are the epitome of self-absorption. And that's why Satan loves it so much. Okay? Look at this quote from a Puritan. His name is uh, William Gurnell, who died a long time ago. But he wrote this really good book on spiritual warfare. And look at this quote. It's a little long, but, but bear with me. He says, if men hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their lives. Listen to this. But they carry the devil in their hearts all day. For if you have a proud spirit, or if you have resentment, or if you have anxiety, you are under his power. He says, my friends, why don't you run from your pride crying, the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from resentment yelling, the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. See, when we think of the devil, we think of nighttime and the lights are low and you hear this noise, oh my gosh, I'm so scared right now. No, no, no. What you should be terrified of is the devil that, care, that you carry in your heart all the time. Because if you're prideful or you're resentful or you're anxious, that's where the devil's actually at. Because the devil is always in the details. He's always in the details. Satan doesn't need this great extravagant victory over you. He loves, he's perfectly content with the small little victories every day. As long as he gets those, he's content. Okay? So, so, so the first way that we have to uh, battle the, 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 the devil is we have to battle him uh, at the emotional level. And the weapon that God gives us is humility. The second way that we have to battle the enemy is not just fighting him emotionally, but we also have to fight him mentally, mentally, with our minds. Why? Well, because in verse 8, it says, be alert and sober of sober mind. Both the word alert and the word sober mind have to do with our thinking. See, the word alert there, it, it means to be vigilant. It means to be awake. It means to be non-drowsy. That's what the word there, alert, means. And then the word sober mind, it means to be self-controlled. It means to have self-discipline. It means to not be controlled by anything. No thought overruling your mind. That's what the word, both the word alert and the word sober mind. So both words there have to do with how you think. So what that means is, is that the second way, the second weapon in, that God has given us to fight this enemy is he's given us our minds. We have to fight him here in our minds. And the, the, especially the word alert, that one stands out to me because it reminds me of a soldier. You know, when, when you're a soldier and you're out in, at war, let's say you're out in the Middle East somewhere and there's a battle going on and, and you are in a, a, a very hostile territory. When the, when the fighting is over, you don't just shut it down, take your tent out and, and relax, right? Because you know that at any, point, at any point, the fighting could happen again. At any point, there's someone who might be watching you as you're out there. So you're not worried about uh, if your socks match, you're not worried about, hey, this food's cold. You're not worried about any of those things because you are a soldier at war. And look at this quote from 2 Timothy. Paul's talking to Timothy. He says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. So many of us are so entangled in civilian affairs. We're so entangled about, on things that don't matter. And Satan loves that. 
Because the more entangled you are, the more he can attack you. And then what's funny is because you're not ready for him, you're, you blame your spouse for your problems. And you blame your children for your problems. And you blame your boss for your problems. And little do you know that there is an enemy who is prowling and looking to devour you. Because you're entangled in civilian pursuits. So mentally, mentally, guys, the, one of the places we fight Satan is up here. We have to. We have to fight, we have to fight Satan in our minds. Actually, Paul gets at this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, if you put 2 Corinthians 10 up. Look what he says. He says, and I hope, man, I hope one day in the next uh, year or so we're going to preach on this passage. Because this, pre- this passage I preached on it a few years ago, and I was just blown away by what it says. But he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So according to Paul, just like Peter, he says that one of the battlefronts is your mind. It's your mind. Because he talks about how we, we, we demolish arguments and pretensions. In other words, when Satan shows up, the thing that he's most attacking is your knowledge of God. That's what he's doing. He's going after your knowledge of God. Because if he can skew your view of God or your view of the gospel or your view of your identity, then he's got you then he's got you. He says the way we deal with it is we take every thought captive. So you probably think, oh, I'm pretty strong, right? I'm pretty strong that I can take every thought captive. No, 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 no. You're not taking it captive because you're strong. You're taking it captive because you are making it obedient, not to you, but to Christ. But what we see is that the battle is happening in our minds. Beth Moore, in her, in her Bible study, uh, Breaking Free, she has this section where she says that every single person, as they grow up, believes more and more and more lies. And the, what we do with these lies is we, we take these lies and like wallpaper, we put them all over the, 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 the inside of our minds and the inside of our brains. So, so when we become a Christian, part of what uh, conforming ourselves, being transformed by the renewal of your mind means is you go in and you rip out the lies of wallpaper and you put up the truths of God's word. That's what we have to do. Because if Satan has you there, if Satan has you deceived, then you're going to lose the battle. Okay? So the first front we fight Satan on is the emotional front. The second front we fight Satan on is the mental front. And then the third front, if you look at the passage, that we find Satan on is the the relational front. Relationally, we fight Satan too. Because he says, verse 9, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Listen to this. Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. So here's what he's telling us, okay? What he's saying to you is that the third way in which you battle Satan is in community. Is in community. Because he uses the fact that other people are also being attacked as a motivation for these believers. See, one of the things that Satan would love for you to believe is that you are the only person that's being attacked in this way. He loves it. Because as long as he thinks, as long as you think you're alone, and as long as you think no one can relate, then he has you. It's just like a lion. Again, back to the whole lion metaphor. Remember what I said earlier? The lion that Lily and I were watching in the video, what it would do is it would stay in the blind spot of the animal it was trying to kill. It was this little buffalo-looking thing. I had never seen an animal like that, but it, but it was a little buffalo-looking thing. And, and, and every time the, the buffalo would look this way, Satan, the, the, the lion would move, and the lion would move. And the, and the lion always stayed in his blind spot. And what, what, what any predator does, because predators are smart, is they go after the animals that are most weak and most alone. That's how they do it. They're not dumb. 
And so when you're isolated, the enemy's going to come after you. He's just going to do it. But here's the beautiful thing about it. When you're in community, you no longer have a blind spot. See? All that animal needed was another animal. And the other animal would have been like, hey, bro, uh, just don't mean to distract you, but uh, there's something about to kill you, dude. Right? That's all they needed. One more animal and they would have seen him. Because he can't say behind two of them. But that's why we need each other. Because a person will come up to you, and some of you, maybe even this year, you've been going through maybe suffering or, 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 or depression or a spiritual attack, and then you've gotten in community and you're like, whoa, why do I feel better? Well, you feel better because now the enemy can't isolate you anymore. You feel better because there's people holding you accountable now. There's people praying for you. There's people who are on the lookout for you. And they're like, hey, just be, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it, it seems like uh, you're under attack right now. It seems like something's going on. I just want to let you know. I'm seeing some things, and, and I just, you should probably be careful. That's how the enemy works. He isolates you, and he makes you think you're the only one. Actually, a little bit later on in this passage, in verse 10, he uses the word steadfast, and the word steadfast in Greek is the word that was used for the phalanx. And for those of you who don't know what the phalanx was, the phalanx was something that Roman soldiers did, that they were famous for. And what they would do is they would go up, and they would actually, they had these, 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 these shields, they had these big, long shields, and they would, they, would come, they would put each shield on the other person's shield to protect themselves. This is what it would look like. So whenever the attack got bad, I would put my shield next to your shield, and the other people would put their shields up uh, uh, over the top of us, and no arrow could get in, and we would protect one another. I didn't have to worry about my back because you were watching my back. That's what the Greek word steadfast is in this verse, the phalanx. And that's why one of the ways we fight the enemy is like this, protecting one another. That's how we have to do it. We have to protect one another, guys, because the enemy is coming after you and he's coming after me. I need to watch your six, you need to watch my six. That's why relationships are absolutely essential if you are going to have any sort of success in your battle with Satan, okay? So we've looked at our enemy, we've looked at our weapons, and I want to conclude this morning by looking at our champion. Now, I know that that word there, champion, sounds very cheesy, and it's like, what is this, a Wheaties commercial? Like, what's going on right now, right? But I'll explain to you in a second why I use the word champion. It's a very strategic word. But let me, let me read verse 10 for you. Look what it says. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast to him be the power, the word their power can also mean victory, to him be the power and victory forever and ever. Amen. Now, here's, here's why I use the word champion. I need you guys to track with me. Nowadays, when, in, in our day, in modern warfare, when you fight someone, right, which, which a lot of times in our modern warfare, there's not a lot of hand-to-hand -hand combat. It's a lot of just missiles being sent at people, right? But, but nowadays, when we think of fighting, when we think of a war, we think of one army on this side, another army on this side, and they attack each other. That's usually what we think of, right? But in biblical times, that's not how wars usually went. They were smarter than us, and so they thought, instead of all of us dying, how about we select one individual to represent each side? 
That's how fights were in the Old Testament. So you would go and you would choose one individual and you would make sure to choose the strongest person, to choose the, the best warrior, the one who's killed the most people. And you would choose that individual. And what that individual would do is they would fight the number one warrior from the other side. And literally what those warriors were called, they were called champions. That's what they were called. They were called the champions of your army. They were the ones who were sent out if it was going to be a one-on-one -on -one battle. But here's the thing. Because the reason why they did this is because there was this thing called federal headship, which what it meant was if one champion won, then all the victory, all the status, all the power that he won for himself would be attributed to his people. That's what a champion did, okay? And we, we, there's a very famous story of this in the Old Testament where, where Goliath is there, and then the, the, the Philistines have already chosen their champion. They know who's fighting for them. And the Israelites are nervous. They're freaking out. They don't know what to do because who are they going to send out to fight such a big, massive, dangerous warrior? They don't know what to do. Then all of a sudden, David comes around. David hears what Goliath is saying, and he's like, I'll be your champion. They're like, no, bro, we don't want you to be our champion because you're little. You're a teenager. You're, you're, what are you going to do to him? He's like, I'm going to fight for us. I'm going to fight for us. So David goes out, he fights Goliath, he defeats Goliath, and when he defeats Goliath, all the Israelites are excited because the Israelites know that now David's victory has become their victory. David's status has become their status. David's uh, power and strength and glory has become their power, strength, and glory. And so even though these people were totally undeserving, even though these people were totally unbelieving, even though these people were totally sinful, they have been attributed everything that David has won on their behalf. But here's the beautiful thing about spiritual warfare. We have been given a greater champion. There is a greater David. And this greater David, listen, he's not fighting Goliath. He is fighting Satan's sin and death, and he has defeated them, totally defeated them, has totally removed his power, has totally crushed the enemy that we had in front of us. And because he has won, because he has done what he has done, now we get his victory. Now we get his glory. Now we get his honor. Now we get his privileges. It has been attributed to us, not because we don't deserve it, not because we deserve it, because we deserve it even less than the Israelites did. But he's been given to us because he has defeated the enemy. And you know who that person is? Well, the passage tells us, it says that we are in Christ. He says, the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's what federal headship is. We are in Christ. When you place your faith in Jesus, his victory is your victory. His glory is your glory. His eternity is your eternity. His status is your status. His privileges are your privileges. And because we are in Christ, we have victory. So, 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 so this is what's beautiful about this, that in, in, in the, the first Adam, he's in a perfect God-ordained uh, uh, garden, and, 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 Christ, and, and, and Satan shows up and destroys him, destroys him. Then we get the last Adam shows up. He's in another garden. See, the, the first Adam sinned in a garden. The, second, the last Adam obeyed in a garden. The, the, the first Adam was destroyed by the serpent. This, the last Adam destroyed the serpent. That's what he did. You know, my wife and I were talking today, and we're like, man, you know, it's so, it's so interesting that Satan uses, the, that, that Peter uses a, a lion to describe Satan, right? That he uses the lion. And it's, the, the thing that scares you about a lion is that what animal can defeat a lion, right? The lion is at the top of the food chain. Like, why would, he use an, why would Peter use an, an animal that's so powerful and so strong that there's no animal that can defeat it? Why would he even do that, right? And then my wife and I were sitting at lunch, and we were thinking, you know, what, what animal is a lion afraid of? You know what animal a lion's afraid of? A bigger lion. 
And according to the Bible, Genesis chapter 49 and Revelation chapter 5, there is a greater lion, and he is the lion of Judah, and his name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ shows up, and the only thing that can terrify a lion is a bigger lion, and so he shows up and absolutely devours and destroys. So instead of the enemy devouring us, Jesus devours him. And here's the beautiful thing about it. When Jesus died, he defanged the lion. When Jesus resurrected, he defeated the lion. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to destroy the lion. Jesus is our lion. That's the lion we should be afraid of. So if you, if you picture Satan waiting for you, just waiting there in the grass watching you, and he's watching you about to destroy you, from now on, I want you to picture this. He's watching you, and there's another lion watching him. And he's not going to move unless he lets him. Because he's on a leash, and he puts him in his cage when he misbehaves. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we've been given. That's what we've been given. And then I want you to go back to, uh, uh, no, right there, you're good. He says there, um, oh, no, actually, go back to the previous uh, slide, verses 8 and 9. Here's what he says. He says, resist him. So that's interesting. The Bible doesn't tell us to fight Satan or to, to run from Satan. So it's not fight or flight. He tells us to, it tells us to stand firm. It tells us to stand firm. And then he says, stand firm in what? In the faith. Standing firm in the faith. Faith in what? Faith in the gospel. In the good news that was declared to us. You see, one of the things that I love about good news is that with good advice, you have to do something about it, right? But good news, you either obey it or you not. You believe it or you don't. And if you believe the good news, you are to stand firm in the good news. The good news that Satan has already been defeated. The good news that Satan has already been vanquished. The good news that Satan has already been defamed. That he's already been destroyed. That's the good news that we stand in. See, so the reason why that's important is because the strength doesn't come from you. The strength comes from Jesus. And so we can stand there, and the way that we defeat Satan is not with our grit, but God's grace. The way that we defeat Satan is not with our muscle, but God's mercy. Okay? The way we defeat Satan is not by being preoccupied with the darkness, but by being fascinated with the light. That's how we defeat Satan. See, because of the gospel, now we don't have to uh, uh, battle in order to get victory. We don't battle for victory. We get to battle from victory. Okay? I don't battle for victory. I battle from victory. And that's why if you go back to verse 10, the passage ends by telling us, to him be the power, which also means victory, to him be the victory forever and ever. Amen. Because I don't know about you, but in light of this passage, the thing that most encourages me is that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Amen. Amen.